Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome back to The Front Three. The tones that you are hearing today are that of myself, Nico Morales, and Kristen Hennage. It's going to be a front two for this week. We're going to be previewing the Champions League ties later this week, talking about the Manchester Derby, the exciting Manchester Derby that took place at the weekend, and then a few other things, Conte, Dybala, Barcelona, other things like that. But joining us right after he you know, got out of the dentist, which shows the extreme amount of dedication that we have from Chris on the podcast. Chris, how you doing today? I'm not bad. Half my mouth is still numb. So if, uh, if it sounds like I've had a bit to drink, I can assure you that's not the case. Well, he's done a little bit of both. He's been at the dentist and then he went to the bar. Um, but we'll forgive him for that. He's here and he's here to talk football. So the first thing that we want to talk about is the Manchester Derby, Chris. Now, this was an insane game. It was a very sad day for me um, because obviously Manchester City thought that they were going to wrap up their title, uh, their title win at, you know, against Manchester United, which would have been great. It would have been one of the iconic moments similar to, you know, Atletico Madrid sealing their title win a couple years ago at the Camp Nou. It would have been, you know, this moment in the, in the narrative that Manchester City are truly announcing themselves over Manchester United after so many years of United dominance, but it didn't happen that way, did it? No, I, I, I mean, that first 45, it seemed like everything was going perfectly. You, you managed to get a goal from Vincent Company, who for me, at least, I think you look at this modern era of City, he is Mr. City. He's the one that sort of ushered in the new generation of, of players. Um, I, th- I think there's part of City that will be kicking themselves because they could easily have been three or four by half-time, and I think they'll struggle to find a, a Man United fan who disagrees with that. Um, and yeah, the, the game, game specifically was so surprising, I think. Um, partly because I think they suffered the same issues, which was runners from midfield in that first half. Um, and then in the second half, it was City's turn to, to panic about that. But I think, yeah, ultimately you, you saw possibly a, a, a very poignant moment of reflection or a very important moment of reflection, I should say, for, for Guardiola to have in the wake of this. And I would imagine Mourinho had a similar one himself on Saturday night, given the, the outcome and the, the difference in the second half. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely agree with you saying there that, you know, you would be hard-pressed to find a fan on either side of the equation that would say that City could not have had maybe four or five in the first half. Um, Looking at the expected goals of this one, it was a really, you know, to use the cliche, it was a game of two halves. In in the first half, um, Manchester United didn't have a shot on target or I think a shot at all, so their expected goals were zero, zero. It It was absolutely nothing. It was completely complete Manchester City dominance from both an offensive standpoint and a defensive standpoint. They managed to rack up 2.4 with some great chances. But then in the second half, while City City still managed to create some good chances themselves, racking up about 1.1, Manchester United completely came through and had about 1.5, which, you know, it doesn't necessarily equate to three goals, but they were still creating chances. So, you know, obviously a big missed opportunity for Manchester City there, but this doesn't necessarily change anything in terms of the title race, does it? I mean, I know there are some harebrained theories out there that maybe Manchester City could, you know, 
fail in the rest of their league games and and hand the title over to Manchester United, but there's no there's no chance of that happening, is there? And no, I, I don't think so. I think they're they're um, they're professional enough to to see through the job to get that that one win that is is needed. Um, and I and I think I think to a certain degree, a lot of things haven't changed more than just the title race. Because actually, if you look at that first half, City started quite slowly compared to how they usually do. They're, they're pretty notorious for scoring inside the first fifteen, and if not the first half hour of games, they they really do start quickly. And I think you notice that the defensive work that City put in, it wasn't engaging nearly as highly in that first 15. But then you look at the goal sort of from the company goal onwards to the end of half time, they started engaging more. They had more aggression in the way they attacked Man United in their own half. And that was what initiated a string of chances was forcing Man United to try and play. And and there is a, a belief that teams that, press don't like to be pressed um and i think you certainly saw that with city in the first in the second half excuse me but i think in the first they showed why they are where they are and why i think ultimately they've still got a chance against liverpool they've i can't fathom an instance where the premier league title doesn't go back there and why they're going to win the premier league title in the first place yeah, I think for me, the important thing here maybe, and I like the fact that you mentioned Liverpool, is drawing the distinction between the two performances of, of two teams that have been successful against Manchester City in the past week, which obviously, you know, they've only suffered, I think, five defeats all season. So for Manchester City to be beaten twice in a week is a pretty incredible thing. And I think the major difference that I'd like to point out from a tactical perspective between Liverpool and Manchester United's performance is that it's more to do with City than it is, I think, the other team uh, in this particular case. So a lot of what City do and a lot of the success that they have comes down to, um, you know, teams falling into the traps that they set for the opposition. So I think... If I were to you know boil it down into a simplistic sort of explanation, Liverpool in the Champions League game against Manchester City essentially waited until the second phase of their progression where the, the midfielders are progressing the ball to the forwards to sort of pounce on them and press those players. The, the two that dropped deep in those situations were Kevin De Bruyne and Fernandinho. They were perfectly comfortable with you know Laporte, Otamendi and company having the ball, it was when it was in that midfield area that they felt more comfortable setting those pressing traps and harrying the players into making bad decisions. In the first half for Manchester United, I think they completely played into City's hand by pressing exceptionally high and not necessarily doing so with a great deal of care. I think it's in the second half where they kind of waited for City to be comfortable in possession and then picked their moments where they could be most successful. And I think that's kind of the most important thing to, to, to point out there. So as a City fan, obviously, I'm, I'm very sad that we couldn't have done it against Manchester United because, as I said before, it would have been uh, a key moment in our history, I think, moving forward. But still, I, I think the league title is ours, and we'll just have to wait maybe a little bit more time um, before we do. Now, moving forward, I think we're going to get... Just quickly, does the, the fact that City do seem a little bit um, susceptible to to defeats or conceding when they're pressed. Is that something that concerns you all, or is that something you think Guardiola can can evolve again from? For me, the the biggest thing with Manchester City from that respect is not so much that they are susceptible when being pressed, but rather they're not really that actually you know they're not actually that good of a defensive team. I think we have this perception, and Guardiola pointed this out in his press conference as well, that Manchester City is this great both offensive and defensive team. They're a great team. That's what they've been called. That's what they've been heralded by the press all season is to be like one of the greatest teams that we've ever seen. And I think from an offensive standpoint, that's certainly correct because so much of what Guardiola has done, this holistic philosophy with pressing and how he moves the ball and how he manipulates the opposition, all of that you know strings strings together pretty well but where Manchester United and other teams certainly like Arsenal and maybe even Napoli have had success is when Manchester City don't have the ball and it's for a sustained period of time they're Manchester City are almost like this agitated kid that is too comfortable with having the ball that when they don't and when they don't have it for maybe five or ten minutes it's very easy to cut them open because the majority of the time, they either have possession or they're working actively to get that possession back. When they're forced to sit in a more defensive 
in a more defensive formation, I think the players are very, you know, unfamiliar to that to that state of the game and it's in that sense where I do actively worry about Manchester City because and I'm sure we're going to talk about this a little bit later when we talk about the Champions League games that's where the the duality of being successful in both a league situation and a cup situation comes into mind is having the ability to switch between a team that can both thrive on and off the ball so I think for me going forward as a City fan under Guardiola that's my biggest concern is that we're amazing when we're working to get possession or we have possession but when we have to be out of possession Mm. and maybe that's the biggest criticism I have of Guardiola is that even in his first year when we drew Barcelona and we you know lost heavily against them in the first leg in the group stages and then beat them in the second leg is that he is uncompromising in his will to possess the ball regardless of the quality of the opposition and then on the I guess the the follow-up I have then is on the other side of the pitch. I mean, Man United showed tremendous, I would say, courage, um, togetherness, all, all the kind of positive words that you can think of for, for initiating a comeback like that, to get out there and actually go and say, yes, they had nothing to lose in certain ways, I get that. But they showed like tremendous, I think, character more than anything to, to do that. And, and clearly are motivated by Mourinho, who gave that famous, you don't want to be clown speech, that um, I think it was Miguel Delaney report and a few other places. With that in mind, given that he's maybe not known for organising um, attacking groups in the, in the greatest way, Mourinho, do you think he now pushes forward in a different direction because he's seen, actually, I've got someone in Pogba who is a number 10, I would argue, or a second striker, seems devastating. I've got some really good players in the final third here, but I just have to give them a little bit of freedom to perform. I mean, I think that's I, I think that's the hope for Manchester United fans because, you know, as soon as the second half begun, you could sort of see a, a slight change in at least maybe instruction or positioning from someone like Pogba, and that's the, that's the thing about him. The, if you watch his performance in the first half, though, there were a number of times where Manchester City specifically focused on him to try to get the ball from him. Um, you know, he would both using his physical ability and technical ability break the press and break you know, a couple city players trying to get the ball from him, but there would be nothing going on forward because of this defensive mindset and this maybe more negative style of football that we associate with Mourinho. So it, it, it could be a turning point in terms of how Mourinho wants to manage Manchester United, and I hope that it is because what we saw there, the go- you know, the two goals in two minutes or three minutes, whatever it was from Paul Pogba, was incredible, and that's that's what everybody wants to see, regardless of what side of the coin you're on, is a brilliant player like him doing what he does best. And he, he's been shackled, and it's so cliche to maybe talk about that and talk about, you know, he needs a defensive midfielder behind him or he needs two defensive midfielders behind him. But he is an, a, a devastating player when he's allowed to do what he wants to do. So I, 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 for the sake of Manchester United, I hope that's, that's what he garnered from, from the second half performance. Mm. I think you throw in Toby Alderweireld in there as well in the summer if if that's a doable I mean, deal. Just to just to go be. off on a on on a little bit of a tangent, then I mean let's let's talk about that move for a little bit because Toby Alderweireld, so, you know, I think we would have the the characteristics and the idea that we've had about this Tottenham team for a long time is this close close knit group of individuals that very much believes in the sort of revolutionary mindset that Pochettino has brought to, to Tottenham Hotspur. And Toby Alderweireld would have been, you know, one of the biggest names that I think you would associate with that. But now we've not seen him play for a couple of weeks. He's played with Belgium. He's clearly fit. What do you make of all this in terms of the commitment? Is this, is this something that we're going to see time and time again? We've seen it a little bit with Danny Rose. Obviously, the, the, uh, the major example is Kyle Walker. Do you feel like it's either... You know, you know, a case of it's his way or the highway in such a volatile manner that kind of maybe after a certain amount of time rubs players the wrong way, and that's what's going on with maybe one of his more dedicated servants, or is there something else at play? Is it just simply a monetary thing, which is by no means a, a dig at Toby Alderweireld, but obviously you know, the, the, the career of a footballer is, is short and can be cut at any time. So is, is that what's going on here? I, th- I think there's a few different things at play here. I mean, Alderweireld is, is 29. He's only just turned 29 last month. So 
you could argue maybe he's got two or three years at, at his peak left. And I think they look, these players like Walker, like uh, Alderweireld, probably Rose as well, they look at what their contemporaries are earning at other clubs. Um, the fact that Walker went to Man City maybe gives some credence to that. I think they look at the fact that they're not winning things either. And that's not a slant at Tottenham as much as Man City are winning things, um, Man United are winning trophies, Chelsea even are winning you know, the Premier League fairly recently. And I think there becomes a point where these players, as they usually tend to be a bit older, I think it's interesting, it's, it's the older players tending to do this. Um, because Walker was, I think Walker was 28, 29. Um, Alderweireld's the same age, as, as we just said. They're the ones coming to the realisation that actually, you know, what what am I getting from this? Because I'm not being paid exorbitant money. I'm not getting accolades and, and trophies and such like. I'm just being in a good team, in inverted commas, with potential. I think for Pochettino, I think much like the old adage about a relationship when you start looking elsewhere, that's that's a sign that it's probably not got a future. I think the same applies: is that when he sees unwavering, uh, when he sees commitment wavering, he looks at that as as a situation that can't be sustained. So he pulls them out entirely instead of trying to sort of rebuild that bridge and, and bring them back in in some kind of scenario. He he looks at it and says, "Okay, well, I think I think in fact with Walker, he, he asked him for another year." Or something like that, and and Walker was was against it, so he just sold him. And and with Rose, it's been a long road back for Rose. Now he's had injuries sort of implanted in that period, but at the same time, he was a much more prominent member of the Spurs squad before he gave that interview. All the quotes were were splashed on the front pages. I think that's the thing with Spurs is that once one person starts to mouth off you almost have to pull them away from the entire setting because otherwise that spreads through the camp and I think honestly this this whole financial aspect of things has been coming to the fore for a while now with Spurs because Daniel Levy has just given himself a big healthy pay rise I think he's on six million a year now which you know I don't think there's any Tottenham players in six million a year for, for my best guess and I think things like that that will force a lot of them the Canes, the Allies, the Ericsons, Lamellas, the prominent players of that squad to turn around and say, well, if you're earning six million, why am I not earning at least parity with, with those players that I'm competing against? And in some cases, those players that I'm finishing ahead of. I mean, I, I, I like I like what you, you said there about the older players and that sort of dynamic there, because I don't know how familiar our listener base is with the NBA, but I would certainly like it to something like the move that Kevin Durant made to, to Golden State a few years ago in the sense that I think he gave it, in in his mind, from uh, from the consciousness of a professional player, I think he, and I've listened to him talk about it many, many times, but in his mind, I think he would have... He felt like leaving Oklahoma City after so many years of trying with Russell Westbrook, getting to the finals, getting to Western Conference finals, doing all those things. He felt like he had left it all on the table for the possibility of winning a championship with the city that maybe he felt like he owed something to, given the fact that they drafted him. You feel then like it's a similar situation with Alderweireld in the sense that it's been a couple of years now. It's been a couple of title, you know, title charges. They've been close, but they, you know, close but no cigar. They've been close in certain competitions. They've been knocked out of the Champions League. They've been, you know, they've gotten close, but they haven't gotten there. Do you feel as though Spurs fans would empathize with that mindset in terms of the fact that they have been there, but they just haven't been able to get across that final hurdle? Do you feel like they would empathize with that, or would it be just a complete betrayal? And does it kind of depend on where he goes next as to whether that narrative, you know, comes through or not? Yeah, I think I think definitely where where he lands next will influence how they feel because I think for a lot of supporters, and this is across the board, not just at Spurs, there's a belief that actually, what difference does another million make? And I think it's only when you realise the the, the size and scope of of the people that footballers have to take care of that that becomes obvious because it's very rarely and this is ve- this is very true of African players in particular we see like Demba Bar and people like that who have to take care of very extended families sometimes even generations later um, I think that for Alderweireld particular I think it, he's almost left in a situation not terribly dissimilar to Luka Modric because 
in fact, I think that was a case where Daniel Levy said, OK, give us one more season and then I'll sell you. And you look at him now, he's 32. He's on course for another Champions League final, having already won the competition um, on three separate occasions. He's won Liga. He's, again, made a, a ton of money, I would imagine, um, at, at, uh, at Real Madrid and established himself as one of the best players in the world. I think that's the problem, is that Spurs right now are caught in that middle ground of being a team that are established in the top four where it's it's sort of slowly not becoming an achievement. The achievement is the consistency, not the actual placing in the top four. It's maintenance. It's not um, anything else. And yet, I don't know if they're quite ready to win a title just yet. I think they need one or two players. And those one or two players are likely not players that will take a year or two to adapt. There will be players that have to come in instantaneously and deliver. And signing those players is not cheap from a transfer fee or a wage structure. And I think what Spurs have done financially has been so prudent and actually quite admirable because I am a bit of a um, a nerd, if you want to call it that, for, for teams that operate prudently when it comes to finance and don't just throw money down a well. But it comes with the caveat that eventually, you know, that has to breed some kind of achievement for it to be sustainable. Otherwise, you have to to, to provide a, a catalyst, which is often a, a financial injection. Right then, moving swiftly on to the Champions League previews. Chris, when we last previewed this, we were mostly correct. We had picked Liverpool, Barcelona, Real Madrid, and if I can remember the last one, Bayern Munich to go through. Now, the majority of the, or actually all of the teams that we picked to go through have the upper leg after the first tie, but let's focus in on the first tie that we will be talking about, which is Juventus versus Real Madrid. Obviously, Real Madrid dominating in the first half, or not first half, sorry, first leg. Um, did you expect this level of domination from Real Madrid? I thought it was going to be a little bit of a closer affair, but Real Madrid seemed to kind of, they do this a lot, don't they, where they, they have a game, it's kind of close, then they start putting in the goals, and as the game goes on, they make it a massive scoreline difference with the devastating ability of their substitutes like Marco Asensio and guys like that. Did you feel like it was going to be this big of a scoreline difference after the first leg? Yeah, um, yes, actually, I, I did. Um uh, and I say that only because uh, we knew that Benatia and Pjanic were going to be missing through yellow card accumulation. And we saw a very strong Juventus squad concede four to Real Madrid. So that's not to say I expected an even greater margin. If anything, I thought three would be about right. Something like 3-1, I thought, would, would, be, um, would be fair. Uh, I think I even said as much in the, the betball column I did that I didn't expect Juve to, to score many, if at all. Um, because I think, yeah, the thing with, with Real Madrid is, and I, I forget who said it, um, it might have been Florentino Perez or, or, or someone formerly, but they said no one plays bad football as good as Madrid. And it sounds oxymoronic and it sounds like an insult, but it's really not. They're, they're a team that Chiellini talked about the history of, of Juventus and, and Spurs in the in the previous round when they beat them. I think you saw the history again here because ultimately you have Real Madrid, the most successful ever European team in, in UEFA European competition, who, you know, I think it was Mark who had the front page about respect um, to PSG in the round before that. And yet on the other end of that, you have the Nili men who are Juventus, who you look at, um, through the 90s with Lippi, they win it in 96, but then they have a few losses. They lose again at Old Trafford, then against Barcelona, then against Real Madrid. They, they, they really are the team that, that gets so close and yet so far. And I think that's what we saw play out here, was a team that promises so much in Juventus. They have so much quality. We think that they are this impenetrable force. And, and Real Madrid find a way. They find a way with a beautiful bicycle kick. And, and Ronaldo... <clears throat> being Ronaldo because I mean he again if if ever a marriage felt perfect it was Real Madrid and Cristiano Ronaldo in the Champions League because this competition is just so perfect for him I, I get the debates about Messi and him that's fine we'll do that another day but he's the top scorer in the competition this season the only person to ever beat 
the total that he's got right now, which is 14, is himself in two separate seasons when he got 17. So he's, he's potentially on course to beat his own records. And he just seems to click in the Champions League. I mean, he wasn't in great form going into the PSG tie at the Bernabeu, and he flies in off his knee or his thigh or something ridiculous like that. I just think this competition, and, and specifically uh, Real Madrid and him, they're tailor-made for each other. And I think for that reason, outright um, and, and do the unthinkable which is a, a third um, Champions League in a row yeah it's funny that you say that because it, particularly when Real Madrid were you know heavily struggling in La Liga there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Obviously, I think they're in fourth place right now. Still not great. Um, but when they were heavily struggling in La Liga, there was a bit of a meme going around Twitter that all you had to do to get Ronaldo to score in La Liga is make sure that you play the Champions League anthem before the match. Um, and obviously, you touched on that. He clicks in in the Champions League competition for him. It's It's been exceptional what he's done, especially after bouncing back in such a, an abysmal start to the year, especially for a player like him. Um but, you know, is there any hope for or for Juventus in the second leg? They're down 3-0. The, this sort of the, the game dynamic favors Real Madrid. I think I've talked about before about how in the second leg against PSG, although it wasn't as clear a margin because it was 3-1, I believe, you know, Real Madrid were still allowed to set up in their 4-2-2-2 formation with a variety of different players um, in those in that pressing structure, and they they were just allowed to dominate. Is that is that going to be the same thing here? Um, will Juventus have any hope, considering they'll have, as you mentioned before, Benatia and Pjanic coming back into the side, or is this is this tie basically done? I think that will help them definitely. I don't think it will stop Real Madrid winning personally. Um, I, I I I don't think they have hope um, just because you look at. Uh, look at Real Madrid's record at home, that's exceptionally good. Um, they usually score at least two goals. I think Tottenham are the only team this season to stop them doing that. Um, and yeah, it's it's just, uh, again, if if we talk about history, Juventus have done a great job of finding value in the market. You look at even guys like Pjanic, Pelo before that, um, Chiellini, Barzagli, you can go sort of back and, and find players that they've picked up for what I would consider low, lower than their actual value. Real Madrid at, at the other end, maybe aside from Asensio, haven't done that. They've gone and just bought and, and said, look, you write whatever amount you want in there, we'll pay that, don't worry. And and that means that there's there's going to be a little, uh, I wouldn't go as far as say gulf, but the, the, there's a gap in quality between the two. And I think there's no shame in losing to Real Madrid because of that. And I think there's no shame for, for Juventus in doing that. And and that, much like Spurs that we talked about, that's that for me is the obstacle that, that you have to now overcome is to work out how to win in Europe against these teams that are just a step or two quicker than them. Another tie that might be over before the ball is even kicked on Tuesday or Wednesday night is... Manchester City versus Liverpool. Guardiola has an abysmal record in this stage of the Champions League. Christy, do you think that is down to his style of football? I've marinated on this a little bit, and I've thought, you know, 
Manchester City being so dominant in the Premier League and really Guardiola teams being exceptionally dominant in league competitions over the past couple of years, I think is in part due to their domineering style of possession football. It suffocates opponents. I think it's very good over the course of a season because they can get into a groove against a wide variety of opponents that they can beat in, in a singular way. Whereas in a cup competition, a team that is more erratic, a team that has more ability when they're being defensive or when they're put into different situations, like a Liverpool that don't have the most consistent results across the season are more likely to succeed in, in these cup competitions. Do you think it's solely down to a style of football or is this a bugaboo that Guardiola will have for the rest of his career? Um, I, th- I do. It's interesting what you said about possession because I do think that when you're playing against a team and you're not touching the ball a lot, I do think there's a sort of mental rust that collects in, in in a player and so that when you do get the ball either your touch is heavy or you force it or you kind of keeping your composure when you do get the ball back after a long period without it I think is one of the most difficult aspects of, of top level football um, in terms of this actual game I, I just don't think City have got enough to turn it around you look at the two times that Guardiola has, has had a three goal or conceded three goals in in an away first leg, he hasn't turned around. Um, And and I just think that it's not so much about will City score the goals, because, I mean, there's an argument to be made there. Gladbach in 2016 was the last time they scored, or won, sorry, by more, by a three or more goal margin. I think City can score, that's fine. I don't think they can stop Liverpool scoring. That's the thing. The, the, the time that they did that, the 5-0, which I'm sure City fans are screaming into their uh, earphones right now, is kind of skewed by the fact that Sadio Mane was sent off. So, I mean, if there's an incident like that, of course it's possible. But if I'm presuming that all 11 men stay on the field for the full 90, I can't see that happening. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, as a City fan, I'd have to agree. I think, I think the approach in, and I'm curious to hear your opinion on this, but... I think the approach in the first leg was still, I'm not going to say the correct one, but in football I think we have a tendency to speak in absolutes and we say, okay, this approach since Manchester City lost by such a heavy margin and now that the tie is over was clearly incorrect. But I think, honestly, I think the same thing happens if he changes it up and does the regular City formation with maybe Fabian Delph or Zinchenko at left back. I think the same thing happens. The same dramatic scoreline difference happens because we experienced exactly that. I think largely what happened was Guardiola trying to change the way that City progressed the ball without having the actual tools to do so. In the one instance where Manchester City have been successful against Liverpool this season was, as you spoke about, the the 5-0 against them earlier in the season. And yes, that might have been skewed by the fact that Sadio Mane got a red card. But before that, before the player was sent off, they were still leading and creating tons of chances doing so. And I think that's largely down to the system that Guardiola intended to play this year in the first place. It was not the typical, you know, Barcelona 4-3-3 in Manchester City now, 4-3-3 that we've come to know with, uh, you know, a hybrid player at left back. It was a 3-5-2 type of formation or even a 3-4-3 that used Benjamin, Benjamin Mendy as a winger. And I think, especially against Liverpool, given the way that that formation specifically allows Manchester City to you know, a myriad of options to progress the ball, not just through the middle, but up the sides. And it puts the defenders of Liverpool's defensive formation in difficult positions. I think the idea was to try to get back to that. And even though I think, you know, someone like Dave or other people were automatically laughing at the fact that even against Everton just a few days before, um, you know, Laporte was left in tons of space because he was essentially something between a left back and a left center back it was still an attempt to try to get past Liverpool in a different way and I think often we can beat people with the same stick that we might or with the same idea that we might praise them for so although you know maybe some Manchester United fans may think I'm trying to absolve Guardiola of blame I think he was trying something new and obviously it didn't work out, and I don't think Manchester City have much of a chance in the second leg to correct that. But, you know, if Benjamin Mendy is fit or we enjoy some tactical masterclass from Guardiola that somehow gets us through, you know, I, I don't think it would be the, 
the worst thing in the world to to kind of talk about that first half performance in in not the most negative way. But moving on, uh, we have next the Barcelona versus Roma tie. Uh, Pretty much business as usual, I think, as we predicted in the preview, Barcelona going through in the first leg pretty pretty easily. Um, Roma not putting that much, that good of a fight up. They, they lost 4-1. Um, as, I'll, as, as I'll ask you for pretty much every tie, is there is there any possibility of Roma <laughs> pulling this one back? I mean, I, I think the, the answer is no, right? No, I think it'll be tight. Um, I think it, it doesn't sound terribly dissimilar to me to when they met in the group stages in, I think it's 2015-2016, where the, the game at the new Camp was was a blitz. Um, I think it was a bigger scoreline, actually, than the one that, that recorded last week. But in Rome, it was a little bit tighter. And I and I think that will be true as well. Um, I think you may even see a Conte-esque type performance from Roma, um, which will nullify uh, Barcelona for a little bit. Because I think, as we've talked before, this Barcelona side, because they're functional, they don't necessarily react well to a lack of space. Um, and so, yeah, I think they'll, they'll be comfortably through, but I'd be surprised if you saw more than a 2-1 if it went Barcelona's way. Now, the last tie that we have to preview is one that I think we would have, or we would have imagined was going to be a little, going to have a little bit more room in terms of Bayern, but the first leg was, was a pretty tight affair between Sevilla and Bayern Munich. Javi Martinez coming out before the tie and saying they were not going to underestimate Sevilla, and they didn't. They came through in the first leg, but it's still only a one-goal margin. Now, the other ties seem like a foregone conclusion. We have the big dogs coming through. They dumped out Manchester United out of this competition, and no one thought that was going to happen. Is there any possibility in this case that Sevilla come through and enjoy? I think the best. I think maybe they've been to a final, but uh, certainly the best in a couple of years, at least in this competition, the best position that they've they've had uh, for a while now. No, I don't think so. Um, I think. They are a beautiful addition to this stage of the tournament. Um, what they did against Manchester United was impressive, as as poor as as United were. Um, but yeah, I just think they lack the, the quality. Really, Ever Benega coming back is is important because he's a bit of a string puller, and that's great. Um, but I think overall, for me, Bayern Bayern are a very meticulous side, um, and their ability to to stop a setback becoming adversity is very impressive. Um, you look even just at the weekend, Augsburg take the lead early on and then they put four past them. It's stuff like that that I think is why uh, Bayern are on, I think they're on for a seventh successive uh, qu- quarterfinal, semifinal, they're definitely seventh successive um, of reaching this stage, I think it is. And, and I think part of that is because of that meticulousness. And, and I don't see that changing, especially at home against Sevilla. I think they know they're in the driving seat. They've got those two away goals. And I think they'll, they'll pick their shots very carefully with Sevilla. I would have to agree. I would certainly have to agree. Moving on to our final couple points of the podcast. We do have some reports as of today, some of them being claimed false, I believe. But kind of a general air... Um, of uncertainty surrounding the Chelsea position. Antonio Conte may or may not be fired before the end of the season. Chris, what, what is your take on all this? I mean, I, I feel like we can have a pretty cogent discussion on Conte's time at Chelsea. Obviously, he won the, the Premier League in dramatic fashion in the first season in charge at Chelsea. I think everybody generally hailed him as a success after that, as pretty much anyone would. But things have not gone near as well in the second in his second year in charge at Chelsea. What, what do you put that down to? I mean, how do you how do you take his time at Chelsea? Um, I mean, the first season I thought he was a lot more adaptable, a lot more pragmatic. I think he expected more in the second season because of what he achieved in the first. And he he has said, you know, this. I think he said in press conferences, this club got kind of what it deserved, which was a. I think a subtle dig at the lack of investment in the summer, or the or the lack of meeting his needs, I should say, because the 
did sign Alvaro Morata, which was a hefty transfer fee. Um, and I think, yeah, the, the problem if I can just for me with Chelsea, you, right? Is is maybe mm-hmm. that that part of the is maybe that part of the lack of success there? Because uh, as we all knew at the time, there was maybe some not necessarily outspoken dislike, but I think a lot of people felt like Antonio Antonio Conte's first preference in the striker position, at least when it comes to transfers, was Lukaku. And he sort of had to settle for a player that he's he had worked with in the past and certainly been successful with. But I don't think Alvaro Morata was mm-hmm. his first choice, right? No, I don't think he was, and and I think it's yeah, it's, it's stuff like that. I mean, for me, and I wrote as much at the time. Rudiger was um, the archetypal Conte signing. Like he that that was someone he wanted. He thought fit his brief very much, and and he's talked in the past about being a, a tailor in so much as making the clothes to fit the players or the formation stroke system to fit the players. That for me was getting a player that he wanted to fit him, and I think this is the problem that Chelsea have is that. The boom and bust cycle that they consistently engage. I don't know if it works very well with the rest of how the club tries to operate itself, um, because they've got a lot of young players that they need to transition in. So they need patience. They need faith. You just need to look at Christensen this season. He's been good. He's also been bad at times. And you need, like I say, you need patience to ride through that. And. At the same time, I think one of the problems is is that the boom, the boom and bust nature of things impl- influences someone like, let's say, Eden Hazard, for example, where he's looking, thinking, you know, maybe I want to go to Real Madrid, maybe I want to move on, because this whole feast or famine approach is not really in making my career the most stable and and helping him, because look at, you know, the fact it's a World Cup season and, and you know, maybe things haven't been the greatest for him on a, a club level. Um, I think it's things like that which make it difficult for them. And and for Conte, I think, look, he he is someone that pushes the pedal down. That's what happened to UV. He was only there um, for, what was it, four years. Yes, they won the league every year, but they did nothing in the Champions League. Allegri comes in, they get to two finals, um, another uh, quarterfinal here. And I think that's the problem, is that Conte is a fantastic short-term solution if you need things sort of just fixing and, and fires putting out. But I think if your intention is to, to, to stick with him long-term, there are some notable drawbacks to that. And I think maybe that's why he worked at, at international level, because the the periods of togetherness or the, the meetups and all that stuff, they're a lot more spread out. So that intensity can sort of, you can step away from it. You know, you don't have to be shrouded in it constantly. And I believe he said he felt like a tortured man when he was working as the Italian national team coach. Obviously, he enjoyed massive success with them getting farther in Euro 2016 than I think anyone would have expected. But still, I think he he is a coach, as Lawrence made a fantastic documentary on him, that likes to to be very hands-on. And I like everything that you said there about his second year. Now, just to touch on one more thing about players and and Conte Bakioko is one of those major transfers that I think a lot of people were looking forward to given how exciting Monaco were last season and him you know uh DMA Bakioko being a major part of that along with Bernardo Silva and a few other players that have done have gone on to do great things in, in Europe after their transfers but he you know looks like a completely different player is this solely down to the fact that Conte is using him incorrectly, or do you feel like there is something else at play in that situation? The two things that jump out to me are transitioning to a new club in a new league is always difficult. I think that's true of any player. And also that he had notable deficiencies last season. There was a lot of people, specifically those who watched Ligon and and Monaco a lot, who talked about his consistency, who talked about his... And I think a lot of those are things we've seen amplified this season. And also the fact that for him, it took a period at Monaco of sort of getting his life together. For one. Being focused and professional. He was at Monaco. And I just wonder, and <clears throat> I confess this is largely speculation on my part, there's no inside knowledge here. If that hasn't changed as well, is that the the stability that Monaco provided him, the incubator, if you will, and the structure has now disappeared. And as such, so is his form. 
<clears throat> I think yeah, he's he's looked poor. There's no other way to deal it, and uh, and I think we as he's looked lacking in confidence. His decision making has not been great. But I think there's clearly a player in there. It's just about whether Chelsea can provide him the support he needs to of, to reach that level again because I think that player is definitely in there. Fantastic. Next on our list of miscellaneous points here, Barcelona, the club that were reportedly in crisis at the beginning of the season, are still unbeaten in La Liga. Uh, they won 3-1 against Leganes at the weekend. Messi bagging a hat-trick. Bleacher Report, Chris, has them as the best team in Europe. What do you make of that? Because for me, if I can assert my point before I even ask you what your point was, um, <laughs> uh, I don't really think that they're that good. I think they are a very good Barcelona team, but in terms of the, you know, the, the, the hall of Hall of Fame Barcelona teams of the past, I think this one kind of pales in comparison. I think they they can do some very interesting tactical things in terms of how they adapt to teams, you know, squeezing them out of out of having so much possession or having possession in the final third. A while ago, I, I wrote something about their win over uh, Real Betis, which was a sort of a significant tactical thing, um, and how comfortable they are in playing with the ball, regardless of where it is on the pitch. But I think their you know their attacking power kind of pales in comparison to, to teams of the past, as as I've said before. But they, I at the same time, I could still very much see this team going going to the final of the Champions League. And I think once you're there, you know you anything can happen. And in that case, if they were to win that, and obviously we're extrapolating in this situation, but if they were to win the Champions League, that would be a, a league and Champions League double. And that would just be an incredible season for a Barcelona team that, at least in my opinion, are not that good. What do you make of this unbeaten Barcelona side? Um, honestly, it's a heck of an achievement. I can't say I've seen enough of them in, in a Liga to truly comment, if I'm very honest. Um, I've only seen them in Champions League where I thought, yeah, they've looked good. Um, they've looked effective for the most part. Um They've clearly transitioned into some sort of new um, new ideas, I think is a good way to put it. Um, and that is maybe a little bit contrasting with what went before. Um, but overall, yeah, it, it, it's not something personally I feel like I've seen enough of them to, to have a strong opinion on. So I'd almost be curious to hear. I know we have a fair few Barcelona fans who, who listen and follow. I'd be far more curious to, to hear what they and, and people like yourself have got to say about it. Yeah, I mean, like I said before, I think when you look at them in comparison to some of the some of the Barcelona teams in the past, even you know the Luis Enrique side of a couple of years before, what Valverde has done to this side, uh, this Barcelona team is very similar. It's kind of taking that typical Barcelona possession, you know, suffocating you by not having the ball at any given point in time, and kind of flipping that on its head. It's, it's making a Barcelona team that is both significant in and out of possession, and, and I think I'm a little bit surprised as to how successful they've been in a league campaign, because obviously we talked about we talked before about the different dynamics of how successful a possession team can be over the course of a league season versus a cup season. And this Barcelona team being more of a uh, defensive team, I would imagine they, they, have, they would have been more successful and have been successful in cup competitions. But I wouldn't have imagined that they, go that they went this long without a defeat. That being said, I think they have quite a few draws. Um, contributing to their un, you know, to their non-loss streak in La Liga, but at the same time, as you're saying, it's an incredible achievement going forward. I mean, uh, I think James York at the very beginning of the season astutely pointed out that there is going to be trouble for this Barcelona team if they do not make some serious transfer moves. Not necessarily for a lack of quality or or, or talent within that team, but many of the key components of of their current squad are getting old, and I think. One of the biggest storylines that we're going to see, and this will probably define how the club goes forward for the next you know, 15 to 20 years, is eventually how they transition out of this messy phase. Because I think having the greatest player of all time for the entirety of his career, for both his peaks and troughs, and the troughs have been few, if at all, um, is one thing, but then transitioning out of that, very sort of similar to what Real Madrid have gone through with, with Ronaldo and probably will continue to go through. 
um, is is a completely different thing. So I think it'll it'll be interesting to see how they how they go through that. But you know that that today that is going to do it today for the uh, for the front th- front three podcast. It's just been a front two today, just me and Chris. Um, if you like what you heard, let us know at the front three on Twitter. Chris is always hard at work uh, writing different things and always making topics as interesting as physically possible. Chris, do you have anything to plug? Anything that people should be reading out there? Uh, nothing that springs to mind, although I may be putting something up. I'm still working on it. Still working on it. I think we are all still working on it in some way. If you want to follow me on Twitter, it's Nico underscore Omorales. Please follow us at the front three. There are going to be big things coming. We have, we understand we've been inconsistent as of late. There hasn't been too many consistent podcasts, but we are sort of getting all our ducks in a row, trying to get a package together for all of you that is going to satisfy both our time commitment and our ability to give you a, uh, you know, a good podcast and, uh, and your hunger for uh for us talking football so for all things the front three stay right here and we'll see you next time Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.